Good day, everyone. I'm very excited today to have a very good friend of mine with us, Gord Hunter, uh, today on uh, Interesting People, Interesting Stories. Gord is one of the, you know, one of the most fascinating people I uh, can call as a friend. He's got an amazing uh, background, history, and so many stories to tell, so I'm quite excited to have him join us today. A little bit about Gord, though. First, he is an author of the book No Badge Killick, which we're going to dive into a little bit. But some more things, Gord has lived in different provinces across Canada, has almost made it coast to coast. Uh, he's been everywhere from Nova Scotia to British Columbia, born in Quebec, uh, and is someone now residing in Saskatchewan for the past 20 years, but views himself as a, as a Canadian first and not regional in nature. Gord is a sailor, landscaper, he's worked on film crews, been a radio producer, he's been an announcer, videotape editor, and a television director. Uh, he's worked with CBC. He's also served as a national broadcast trade union. He's also been an executive with the media workers for the uh, CEP union in Canada and has negotiated a wide array of, of contracts over the years. Uh, Gordon and I share an interest in, in good craft beer and playing floor hockey. Uh, Gord loves to cook and I love to eat, so that seems like a perfect match for me. Uh, his book, No Badge Killick, is based on his time in the Navy from 1962 to 1970 during the Cold War years, or some of the Cold War Wars. So at, uh, with that, uh, I'm going to uh, have Gord weigh in here. He, uh, he, his book is fascinating. I actually was able to read his blog posts and some of the early drafts of his book. Uh, it's an exciting, interesting book, a perspective from somebody who wasn't an officer, but somebody who was very active in the day-to-day. Gord, what, what, what compelled you um, to write this book? What was so important to you that you wanted to get this down into uh, written format? Well, it really didn't start as a, as a book. You know, it was, um, when I retired, I was looking for something to do. You know, I was looking for a creative outlet, trying to find something that, uh, that could take a bit of my time. It was a bit of a challenge. And, and so I, I created this, blo this blog called No Badge Killer. And, uh, and I thought I would just put together a few stories and, and uh, my experiences and some of the things that happened when I was in the Navy. And, um, and then as the blog progressed, I started getting feedback online from uh, former Navy guys, uh, from not only from Canada, but from really from around the world. And, uh, and I was quite surprised by that. And I, and I kind of continued to work at it and was back and forth. And at some point, I looked at the volume that was there and said, you know, I think this book here. And then I sort of, I took everything down. I just like copied everything, stuck in different files, and then started seriously to look and say, well, you've got to, you've got to write a book. You've got to have a beginning and an end. It's got to have a narrative. It's got to have a flow. And, uh, and that took me several years to put together. But in the end, um, I, I ended up with a book that I'm, that I'm quite happy with, in fact. Uh, not just you quite happy with, it's, uh, it's sold a substantial number of, of books across Canada. In fact, if, uh, if we're tracking bestseller lists, I'm pretty sure you'd be closing in on some of that with, uh, with your book. What, what, what are people finding appealing about the book? What, what well, I, there's, there's two groups of people, I think. There's, there are people that just have an interest in, in the history, but the period, about the fact that, uh, that not very many people know very much about the Cold War. And, uh, and that period of time. And so there were people who were interested from a historical perspective. Then there were people who, uh, and, and there are quite a group of them whose, whose 
perhaps their father was in the Navy, uh, their grandfather was in the Navy, and they'd just like to know more about the sort of life that person had when they were, um, um, before, sometimes before the children were born or when they were pretty young. I, I had a, a guy who corresponded with me quite a while. I got readers start back and forth with me quite a bit. And I had this guy that corresponded with me for quite a while. And, and what, it, what it was was his, his dad. He, were, he, was, um, he was born in Halifax and, and was, it was brought up there. But when he was eight or nine or maybe 10, his dad died of a heart attack. And uh, they left Halifax. And, and, uh, but this whole, he always had this kind of this, this memory about the Navy and, and about the ships down in the dockyard and those kinds of things. And he just wanted to know more about, about what that time was like and the kind of things that his dad might have experienced. And, and, and he, he bought the book and after he read it, he was back and forth with me for some time about questions. And so there was, there was a bunch of them. And then on top of that, there are a whole group of people who, who served during that period of time. Um, and so, so old sailors who served from the late 1950s up until uh, um, 1980 and more were were really interested in in the period of time. It's a period that really has been ignored for the most part by our government. It was a really interesting, challenging time, and um, but nobody really wants to talk about it very much. And there have been a few things written, but most of them by um, by former officers, part of the hierarchy of the Navy, or people who've done academic studies looking at it. But nobody had looked at at what it was like as a regular seaman, to go in as an ordinary seaman, a leading seaman, an able seaman, to try to talk about, about what the life was like, living on board, on the ships, the sort of challenges that we faced and that kind of thing. And I get so much feedback from, the, from so many of those people who've read the book that say, you, you know, this, this is my life you're talking about here. And it's, you know, it's quite, I, I feel great about it. I mean, it's a really, it's such a, uh, to me, it's, it's, it's such a privilege to have put something like that together that has helped these guys really remember and, and, and share their own, say, you know, I got to get the wife to read this book. You know, this is fantastic. You know, <laughs> that sort of thing. You know, it's great. I really enjoy it. That is, that's so there's a few things I want to delve into. Sure. It's like, why don't, why don't we want to talk about that era? Um, what, what is it about that era that leads to collapses? I'm not sure, you know, it was a time, I mean, I think at this point, certainly with the, you know, with the, I mean, the Soviet Union is gone, that there, there have been so many changes. And, um, and, the, and, you know, people are working on trying to build and rebuild relationships and things like that with, with different parts of the world. And I think maybe it's just because they don't want to go back and remember how tense things were. I mean, it was tense, you know. I mean, I was brought up at a time when people built fallout shelters in their backyards. I mean, when there was one right down the road from where I lived. Um, there were sirens put up in every community um, just in case. We were taught in school about getting under our desks in case of nuclear attack for all the good that would have done. But still, you know, we're, it was a very, very, um, uh, it was a very tense time. And I think that governments just would, just assume, just to shuffle that out of the closet and not talk about it. But for a whole lot of it, that was a significant part of our lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, for those of us, particularly those of us in the armed forces, we were very close to some of the tensions that happened during that period of time. 
and a lot of people feel kind of pretty chagrined about that. You know, and you think about it, you, you joined the Navy right around the Cuban Missile Crisis. I, I, I did. I, I, was, I was 17. I joined in August of 1962. So we had just about finished basic training uh, when the Cuban crisis happened. The week ahead of us, like the, 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 because there were, you know, there was a sort of a class a week sort of thing in basic training. The week ahead of us was sent to sea. Uh, they held on to us and kept us in, in the, the, the base that, that provided the basic training. And they kept us there, not quite sure what to do with us until around uh, sort of late fall, we were sort of sent home for Christmas. But it was, there we were sitting, you know, when it, it, you, you know access to, to media the way we do today and sitting there, and nobody told us a hell of a lot. We just sort of sat there and knew that there was this thing going on, try to get hold of newspapers and watch those crummy reception on black, black and white television yes. <laughs> and sort of try to see what was going on. Um, and, uh, you know, it didn't last all that long in a lot of ways, but uh, it was pretty tense for, you know, for guys like us. We were, I, by that time, I was 18, you know. Yeah. I've done anything in my life hardly, you know. Just had left high school. Yeah. And uh, how, well, how well understood do you think the Cuban Missile Crisis is understood today or even remembered? I don't, most people don't remember it, I don't think. And, but it was very, very tense. I mean, if you do any research into it, you can find lots of photographs of, uh, of, of ships carrying, Soviet ships carrying uh, missiles into Cuba. You can see how, where they were erected, you know, and, and uh, um, spy plane photographs of, uh, of missiles there and warships all over. I mean, in the, you know, we tracked, I think the Canadian Navy tracked, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to get it wrong, but I think it's about 18 submarines, uh, Russian submarines off our coast uh, during that period of time. And uh, during the Cuban crisis, um, mm -hmm. there were every single ship the Navy had, the Canadian Navy had, was sent to sea. Uh, just about every nation in the world just had everything out there. It w we were very, very close to armed conflict. I don't think people realize how close it came. And then finally, uh, a settlement was negotiated at the uh, United Nations. But people don't really know about that. We really were on the cusp of a nuclear war. We were. And, and to have, have that almost being lost in history or even not fully understood, I, I wonder what the impact of that is today where maybe we can be a little too cavalier about international relations. Well, it's funny. On the one hand, I think, you know, I, I, I think that people don't don't take it seriously. They don't take it as seriously enough to understand how quickly it it can be that some, something like that can get out of hand. It doesn't take very much um, to, it takes a, you know, a couple of missteps on, on, on either side. Uh, and, uh, and first thing you know, you're right on the edge of something that could be a disaster. And, uh, and, you know, people have become pretty cavalier about that these days, I think. And we, the things that we worry about aren't anywhere near as, as dangerous, in my view at least, as that situation we were in with the Cold, with Cold War, with the Cuban crisis um, during that time. When, so in that moment, how were you feeling about your choice to join the Navy? <laughs> I, you know what, I, I think I was 18 and stupid, right? I, it was, you know, it was like, uh, well, yeah, this is kind of interesting sort of thing. You know, I mean, I don't think we really took it 
I don't, we weren't, I don't remember being frightened at all. Yeah. But, you know, 18 year olds tend to be uh, kind of, I don't know, unrealistic about some of those things. <laughs> all right, well, we won't delve into that. Uh, let's, uh, let's just say that's a common understanding and we're all going to agree. 18 year old men <laughs> are not overly bright. Um, nobody write in please or complain that I just said that. Uh, now, uh, you, what was your first ship? What, what, My first ship was a, was a frigate. It's funny because we, when, when I was finally shipped to Halifax and we used to go down to the dockyard, you know, us kind of new guys, you know, and we'd walk around the dockyard over the, uh, you know, on the weekend and things like that. Look at all the ships and Canada had a pretty big Navy in those days and look at all the ships and there were an aircraft carrier and minesweepers and destroyers and all kinds of stuff. And, and so we look at all these, these, these destroyer escorts and things like that and think, oh yeah, I really want to get, love to get on one of those. That'd be fantastic, you know? And, and then I ended up getting um, drafted to a, uh, to HMCS, we called it La Haloise, but it was La Huiloise. It's, um, and uh, um, we, uh, it was an old uh, World War II uh, frigate that had been converted and uh, there wasn't a lot terribly nice about those old frigates. No. There was, a, you know, mostly steel and uh, not a lot of amenities, you know. And so that was my first, but, it, but you know, it's interesting that the, 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 the ship had, um, had quite a history to it and uh, had, been, had been really busy uh, working out of uh, uh, the, the uh, working in the Irish Channel, uh, the channel between Britain and and um, and the UK, and um, and one and actually sunk a uh, a, a um, German submarine one night in the uh, and so had a, had quite a had quite a history. And it was interesting because this guy, a radar guy, actually saw something and said, "There's a contact there." And the officer of the watch, he went to the officer watch and said, "There's a contact that shouldn't be there." The officer watch says, it's just a, like a gremlin. It's nothing. Don't, you know. And he was so annoyed at the officer the watch not paying attention to it that they got into a shouting match on the bridge. And the captain, whose cabin was right attached to that, came out of the cabin and said, look, you know, like I'm trying to sleep. What is going on here? And, uh, and the, the radar guy said, look, there's a gremlin. There's something out there. There's a contract out there. And he won't believe it. So the skipper said, oh, well, turn it around. Let's go. Let's have a look. So they turned the ship around and they got up. And they tried to track this thing and get big searchlights out and stuff. And there was, a, there was a periscope, like not very far away. Like, you know, and they, they um, moved in depth charges and stuff like that. It, the submarine dove further. And, uh, and they, they, uh, and the submarine had actually sunk two, uh, two um, merchant vessels the, uh, uh, the day before. And uh, so, I mean, it had quite a history, you know, as, as like old wreck of a submarine, of a frigate that it was, you know, it had quite a history. Now, you, um, uh, you had served in the Navy for eight years, I believe it is? Yeah, it's just, yeah. And you were on the frigate, but you were also in a sub. So it's interesting to talk about the frigate history, knowing that eventually you ended up being in a, in a sub. <laughs> um, it is, you know, you came, <clears throat> the whole purpose of the, of the Canadian Navy, the main sort of focus of it was anti-submarine warfare, and uh, and as I was a sonarman, so my job was to was to try to find submarines, right, and uh, 
But during that process, I did learn that they are very difficult to find. <laughs> and I, you know, spent hours and hours with headphones on listening to those reverberations going out into the ocean and, and not hearing anything back and, and going through exercise after exercise in which the submarine got away. And uh, somewhere along the line, I was, uh, I was sitting up in that. I, I did a short stint on, on shore and, and this buddy of mine came along and said, hey, Gord, like I'm, he was a sonarman too. And he said, I'm really getting bored like doing this. Uh, I think of joining submarines, what do you think? And I was pretty bored. I went, yeah, let's do that. And so we That's pulled up a stint. And so we, so we joined submarines. <laughs> it's good to know that it was a very, you know, deep, thoughtful process. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> so much in my life. <laughs> what, um, uh, what did you learn by being on a, what was, what was your experience? What did you learn by being on a sub? I, you know, one of the things about submarines, more than anything else, I think, I think, is, is that you have to really understand it. You have to learn to get along with people. Mm -hmm. You have to learn how important it is to give people space when it's time to give space, and to give people the, uh, you know, the ability to kind of sound off when they have to. You have to listen. You've got to, and you have, you've got to be able to work together. You got to respect for the person you're working side by side with. You really depend on each other in submarines. You're very you know, the boat that I was on there are there were uh, what seven officers and 55 crew uh, so not very many of us we stood what we call one on three watches so you never ever got a full night's sleep you know you kind of worked through those things you uh, but you had to depend on each other to be able to kind of work through because if somebody made a mistake and there were lots of things that could happen mm -hmm. and if somebody didn't do their job, then you could all be at peril. And, and, and that sounds like an exaggeration, but it's not. And it, you know, you don't have to look that far to see how many um, submarines, even during peacetime, uh, have gone down, you know, the Thresher, the Scorpion, um, you know, there's a couple of French submarines have gone down. There's a, an Israeli one, uh, certainly the, the Russian one, the Turkish that we, that we, you know, there's been movies made about. Um, so you need to be able to depend on people and depend on each other. So you've got to have respect for each other. You've got to be able to work together. And I think more than anything else, that's, that's a huge part of it is learning how to, just learning how to work in, and depend on one another. How do, you, how do you find a way to give a person space in a sub where there really isn't space? Um, you know, it's different. Well, I, I think a lot of it is, and let me, let me just tell you a story about how difficult it is, you know, because we had in, in the forward compartment where most where we lived, like where there was a bunch of us lived aft by the torpedo tubes in the, in the after part of the submarine. And, and uh, they were mainly sort of guys who worked with the engine and the electrical part of it. And the rest of us lived up forward in a very small mess there. Somebody on board sent a thing to Agriculture Canada and said, this is the space we got, like, what could we raise in that in that space and and they they and they swore this is true you know they, although they do tell a good story i don't know anyway they they you know they swore that what happened was that they could uh, you could raise three pigs in that area well there were 30 of us there in that space you know and uh, and when you came off watch in the morning and were like if you'd 
been relieved just before breakfast and you were eating your breakfast. There was another watch, another third of the crew that was still, still sleeping. But about halfway through your breakfast, they would start waking up, you know. And so it's very tight. So you'd be eating your breakfast and somebody's leg would come out of a bunk, you know, with, and you can imagine, you know, not a lot of jammies, you know, got worn on the submarine. <laughs> and so, you know, this leg would come out with all the rest dangling and stuff like that. And they'd find a way down uh, and put this foot on the table right next to your eggs, right? And then find a way down or whatever, right? So it was very, very tight. Did you, and, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. So, 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 so you just had to, you know, you couldn't get pissed off about that. No. You know, you just couldn't because tomorrow it probably was going to be you that came down and did this sort of, so you just had to be, you had to be tolerant. You had to read people and you just knew when not to push. Sometimes, you know, like somebody would just go up and sit in the fork computer room for a while and just by, be by themselves. That was a, about the, furthest you could get away from anywhere is just sort of sit up there and uh and if somebody just sitting by you just left them alone and uh it took but it did it took a special kind of person you just had to learn to to deal with people to to be aware of them to watch them to talk to them uh when it was necessary to talk to them and leave them alone when it was necessary to leave them the hell alone mm -hmm. you um uh uh have told me you had a prime spot to sleep. I did. I did. You had like the best spot. I, well, I certainly thought it was the best one. And uh, there were, there were in, in the mess deck that I just talked about, there's, there were bunks that three high that, that sort of circled every, well, three of the, of the four bulkheads. And, uh, and so that was very crowded, but in the forward torpedo room, there were six bunks and the bottom on, so three on each side, and the bottom two were, were side by side, so that if you got off watch and the guy on the outside was sleeping, you had to climb over top of him to get into your bunk. So I didn't have one of those. <laughs> I, I, had the, I had the top bunk, which was a single bunk. And so my feet sort of rested on a torpedo and, uh, and the rest of my sort of bunk was there. And, there were some disadvantages, you know, so, so it was, it was private. It was like you by yourself, but it had a few disadvantages when you're in the North Atlantic in the middle of winter, condensation tend to form it and water would drip onto your bunk. And that was a bit much. And every time you surfaced, like 4,000 pounds of air pressure would hit this valve that was right above my head. And it would like to fill up the ballast tanks. And that was a little noisy. But other than that, it was a perfect bunk. <laughs> Sounds very, very appealing. Oh, really? It was. It was. Uh, it was. Yeah, that's prime spot. The the thought of having to climb over someone to climb, get into my bed bunk is yeah not not really high on my list. Of things I I'm slept on uh, at one time. I got I got press ganged into going to see. They needed a sonarman on one of the other submarines, and I was I was uh, um, I had been sort of captured to do another job and I couldn't get away. I had to sort of stay and do that job. And, and so at some point about four sonarmen came out of the, right, came out of the, uh, out of the submarine and laughing and, and, uh, and headed across the gangway into the dockyard to hide. And they just heard the word that the uh, Okanagan, one of the other submarines was short one sonarman. So you can imagine who got captured 
of me. And the first thing I knew, they were, I was walking on board, they hauled in the gangway and off I went right with the submarine, the other submarine. And I ended up having to sleep in one of those bunks that was the, and it, it was never fun with that guy climbing over top of you at about three o'clock in the morning. Uh, it seems odd to me that the Navy didn't ask you if you wanted to go on the Okanagan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they didn't ask a lot. No. <laughs> it wasn't a lot of asking. There was no please and thank you in the Navy. <laughs> but um, when you think about your time in the Navy for eight yeah. years, and you mentioned about learning to read people and, and really learning how to work with others and functioning within that environment, uh, 62 people in a tight space like that. Um, you came out of the Navy and you chose to work in media. Uh, and then for media, you, you, you focused on becoming... Uh, involved in uh, working with the unions. How did, how did you end up going from Navy to media to becoming um, a national president for a union? Well, it's interesting, you know, in, in the last couple of years that I was in the Navy, I had a lot of friends, a lot of civilian friends, a lot of people who were going to, at, to university in Dalhousie and, uh, and St. Mary's University in, in Halifax. And they really encouraged me to, uh, um, you know, to get out. I was talking about saying, I'm not sure that I'm going to have a make a career out of this. I, you know, I think after eight years, I may just bail. And, but I didn't, I really didn't know what I was going to do. And so they, uh, they encouraged me to, you know, to go back to school. And, uh, uh, and so I, you know, I kind of, <laughs> they ended up getting me like school calendars, right. And sort of, you know, what, like, what could I take if I went here, sort of thing? And I, I didn't have a clue, right? And I went through, and I was, I was a high school dropout. And I went, and uh, because the, well, I, high school got kicked out, really, is more. <laughs> and and uh, so they, they, uh, they gave me calendars and said, look, you can do this stuff. You know, you, I'm sure you can do it. I, so, I, so I looked through to try, and I thought working in the media might offer a number of different possibilities. So I, so I did that. I, I thought that would be a good idea. I, uh, I wrote uh, grade 12 equivalency, Nova Scotia Department of Education, you know, got my uh, grade 12 and uh, went to Calgary and enrolled in the Mount Royal College uh, Communications Arts Program. <laughs> and then ended up and I, and so I worked in radio and then in television after that. So you, um, I'd, like to, I'd like to drill down into your experiences as uh, within leadership responsibilities within sure. national unions. Um, and how you drew from your experiences in the Navy into really becoming quite effective uh, negotiator. Uh, in fact, what is your your stat? You've never had a lockout or a strike. How did that go again? What's the well? I actually I negotiated collective agreements for thirty years. So, so the first one I ever did, we ended up having a, a, a we did have a walkout. We had this oh, okay. kind of illegal walkout. We just kind of walked out for like three days or something. And you you led them on, huh? Did you lead that? I, I, yeah, I was one of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and, uh, uh, and then I really negotiated off and on for about thirty years, and I only had one labor dispute during that period of time near the end of my career, and it was completely unnecessary. Uh, it was a, a mine up north, and uh, the the members turned down the uh, turned down the agreement. I really thought a settlement was there. We really could have easily worked it out. The company was really quite pissed off that it happened, and they they actually locked us out. And I, so they had I, they 
I had to wait till the last plane out to, before they put me on a plane. And, um, and then that was on a sort of Thursday or Friday. And then on Monday, we negotiated, negotiated with the CEO across the picket line. We put an agreement together before noon and, um, and everybody went back to work. But that was like, so I went that whole career really nothing. I never had a strike. Um, and, uh, and only once had a lockout in a situation which was completely unnecessary. And I think you do that because you, you know, I mean, I think you have to enter negotiations. You enter negotiations knowing there are certain things that you want and there's certain things that the company wants too, you know, and some of them, some of them, I was in an industry that was changing substantially. I mean, I, for the most part, I was, I was negotiating television, um, uh, collective agreements. Um, that industry was changing a lot. There was a huge amount of production. When I started, there was a huge amount of production that was done in-house. Um, you know, places like BCTV or CFCF in Montreal or CFTO in Toronto, or like they all did their, a lot of their own programming. And then that stuff was sort of, they used to call it bicycle, you know, sort of across the country. And, uh, and, sort, and that was changing and they were starting to reduce those, those production crews, um, a lot less things were bought by outside, from outside uh, producers. Um, so the industry shifted a lot just in terms of what we wanted. It was more of a shift to news. Um, and, uh, and so there were changes that happened all the time. So you really had to be prepared um, if you were the least bit aware of what was happening in the industry. You had to be prepared to listen to what the company, what they needed. And you had to try to sift through from what they needed from what they wanted, which was, you know, a couple of different things there. And we had to do the same sort of thing. But a lot of that is just simply because of the fact you've got to, you know, what I talked about earlier, but you really got to listen to people. You've got to be able to, to, to understand who they are and what they think they need or what they do need, and then try to parse that into something that you could both agree to. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, you know, so it's not an easy thing, but a whole lot of that is about listening. And a lot of that is, 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 is simply trying to find that middle ground that you're all going to deal with. It's not all that different than just getting along with people in a whole lot of ways. It's just trying to find, trying to find the middle ground, trying to find what you can live with, what they can live with. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a matter of just trying to make that work. It's not always easy, um, but uh, how, how most part, I made it work. Yeah, clearly. I mean, it's, and I know you well enough that it wasn't just trying to accept whatever was put on the table. It was no, 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 no. these interests were looked after. How did you maintain such a high level of trust throughout the negotiations with not only your members, but with the management team at the same time? So you could get to an effective settlement. Uh, I always thought it was important for the people on the other side of the table to like me. Mm -hmm. I always figure it was harder to say no to a guy you like than it was like. That's <laughs> true. That's true. So it was like, so, so I thought it was, you know, so I tried and I'm, you know, I am not suggesting for a moment that this was, this was always the case, but I tried very hard to be able to, I, I, I wanted the company to know that I understood, I understood the industry, I understood the issues and that I was listening to what they were saying about what, you know, what was needed. And, uh, and so I wanted them to expect, I wanted them to respect my experience in the industry. And I wanted them to, to, to respect me as a negotiator to sort of try to work it. The other side, 
can sometimes be difficult is that is simply trying to work through with your own committee because because a lot of um, sometimes if you have a committee that's made of a bargaining committee that's made up of people and those for the most part those are the people who make the decisions mm -hmm. you know i as the person as the rep the person who worked for the national union i wasn't the guy who would, who could go out and say okay that's the deal those are the people that had to so I had to be able to find something that they were happy with and also find something that the other side was happy with. Mm -hmm. The other problem with it is if you had a committee that had never been to the bargaining table before, they would fly off the handle at things that were, they were going, you know, this is just the process, like relax, relax. You know, don't worry about this, we'll, we'll get through this, you know. And so you've spent a lot of time working with your committee working with them to have them understand and because they have to trust you too. Yes. And uh, so you, you know, you've worked, so you work it through, right? Yeah. It's a, uh, it's quite a game. How do you, how do you pull the two groups together when things are flying off the handle? Like, how do you approach that? What do you do? Well, I, if, if it's, if it's difficult, if in fact we've got a, a situation in which the like my committee members you know the people on my side of the table are really quite bitter and twisted about it and 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 uh, and, and it shows at the bargaining table you try to sort of separate it as much as possible i always made it very clear that that okay they could make the decisions as to whether or not something something stays or it goes but don't make any mistake I'm the spokesperson. I'm the person who talks at the table. And if you have an issue, we'll work that out when we're together. Right. And so you would get, you know, you get in situations where sometimes people lose their temper and they go, and you'd have to go, hang on a minute, we're just going to leave this for a sec here. Anyway. And sometimes you would say, can you give us a few minutes? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and kick the company committee out of the room for a little bit, and then you sort of, then you'd slug it out, right, until you could right. sort of get it to work. And it sometimes was very, very difficult. I mean, that one time that I that I talked about, where, um, where there was a, we were at the very, very end, and there was a lockout, and they they flew us out of the mine. Um, we had reached an agreement at some point, and then so the committee agreed they all agreed and then when they got back into the mine they ended up um undermining what we had agreed to my committee undermined what we had agreed to and the company filed an unfair labor practice complaint said we were bargaining in bad faith and so we were there with actually with a with a mediator who was who was supposed to try to sort of sort through this and uh, and to supervise the vote but I was, since I was there at the ballot box watching it, and I could see some of the people like going to the junior people in the department saying, vote no, vote no, vote no. I oh, knew wow. it was gonna fail. Wow. And, uh, and, it's, and there's nothing I could do about it, right? But I was like the guy who was holding the can because I was like the, you know, I was the national representative. And so I was sort of, sort of stuck with it, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, but I knew that we could just settle this thing. 
But so sometimes it gets out of hand. Sometimes you lose control of those situations. Right, right. I'm, I'm curious with, with all your experience in uh, not just the labor movement, but in business in general for organizations and industries, what, as we sit in the midst of this pandemic right now, what do you, what is, what does the future of jobs look like from your angle? What do you, what do you think this, how does this all shake out? Uh, What's your crystal ball, Gord? Tell me the answers. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why uh, wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> I actually really would. <laughs> this is a lot of yeah, I, you know what? I, I don't know. I think we're all going to have to sort of step back. I think we're all going to have to step back and, and try to figure out what happens now with a whole lot of things. I think the, the nature of work may shift substantially. And, uh, and that I think both sides of the bargaining table have got to be able to be prepared for that. Um, I, I do think that there's going to be a fair amount of pushback, certainly in some industries, in terms of how we, when we come out of this, how we deal with it. Uh, because what's become clear during the pandemic is there are clearly are people that we have exploited uh, in terms of what we, what we pay them, the benefits we give them, what we expect of them, who now are keeping us running, keeping this country running. Yes. Uh, you know, healthcare workers and people in grocery stores and, and people like that, who, who, were, who were really, for the most part, ignored and very often paid very badly and treated badly. And, uh, you know, people who had to work. Like, I mean, you know, for profit healthcare, uh, you know, people, and people who, had to, uh, who had to work at three different homes in order to make a living. And uh, which, which was the cause of much of the spread of the pandemic, certainly in Quebec and Ontario and places like that. Where, and, and so there is going to be some very, very tough bargaining going on there to try to make, to try to make that work. And, uh, and uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how it shakes down. I have no crystal ball really other than yeah. that. I, I wonder what it looks like for some industries in general where it seems to me that we may end up consuming less. Uh, the where we work and how we work may shift. Yeah. Uh, what that impact will be on some some industries for jobs. Uh, I've heard everything from stats or it's saying in retail, don't don't be surprised if there are thirty percent less malls. Um, malls, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the online shopping element um, could have a huge impact. And I, I do wonder if there's going to be some form of shifting of where people work, how they work. Uh, it certainly seems to me like it makes a lot of sense other than healthcare, particularly in senior care homes. Uh, it would have to be some form of change in wages for, for people in those areas. Uh, it seems awfully crazy um, when you say three, you have to work at three different places to make ends meet. Yeah. That's not sustainable. What, um, when, you, when you take a look at your, um, I just wanted to shift back to the Navy a little bit, because okay, sure. that's a fascinating time. And uh, the eight years that you uh, spent in the Navy, what was the difference of Gord going in at 18 and then Gord coming out of the Navy at 26? <laughs> yeah. Right around that. It's interesting, you know, because I think, I mean, you know, when I joined at 17, I was a kid, you know, I really was, I didn't have any experience. Um, 
You know, that certainly in 1962, families didn't really travel the way they do today. So it's like, I know my kids by the time, I remember at some point after we moved to Regina and we were saying, well, what do we do this summer? And my daughter was probably 12 or 13 at the time said, well, you know, maybe we should go to Nova Scotia again. Well, you know, <laughs> when, you know, because, because as a family, we moved around, we've traveled, we went here, we went there, we traveled all over the place, 1962. There wasn't a whole lot of that. You know, we sort of, everybody pretty much stayed put. You know? I didn't have a car until I was, my parents didn't have a car until I was about 15, you know. Yeah. So it's like, you know, people just didn't sort of move around. I was a pretty naive kid in a whole lot of ways at 17 years old when I joined the Navy. I didn't know a whole lot. When I, when I left at, uh, when I left uh, eight years later, I was, uh, I was a lot more mature. I had, as a, as a leading seaman, which is what I was before I left, I had a lot of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, we had, uh, um, you know, we had dealt with, with, with sort of, sort of life and death situations. And we'd been in, in very tense, you know, um, thing, uh, situations and, and, uh, um, and, and really endured, you know, an awful lot of hardship in order to try to work my way through it. So, and I had a lot of discipline too. When I was 26, and I probably had a lot more discipline than a whole lot of the other my peers when I got out, when I went out to college. I was probably the only guy who never missed any classes when I went to college and was always on time. You know, like, In fact, you're still there was no excuse for being late. Right? You were just on time, and that's the way it was. It's In fact, like, you're still that way today. In fact, you. I am. I've never. I'm just like if if I'm late, it's somebody else's fault. <laughs> I truly believe that. <laughs> I truly believe that. You know, Gord, it's uh, such a fascinating story. If people want to get a copy of your book, where can they get it? They could, the, the best thing to do is I have a, um, you, you could probably put a super up or something, but it's, uh, it's uh, no badge killick at blogspot.ca. And if they go there, all the information about how to order the book is there, and, and they could do that. They could buy if they're in Regina, they could buy the chapters. Um, but uh, and uh, I was going to say Ginelli Robinson, but I think they're out of them. And uh, uh, or or email me, and, and we will uh, we'll be posting up that link so that people will be able to click on it and. Uh, we'll also get um, uh, the synopsis of, of your book on the, on the website as well. So well, That's perfect. And it's a lovely book, too. <laughs> I love that picture, by the way. I I love that. I love just that. in case. <laughs> Gord has not changed one bit over the, over the past 40-some years. Well, Gord, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's always a pleasure to chat. And uh, look forward to talking with you soon again. So thank you. you. I'll be looking forward to having a beer at Bushwhackers one of these days. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Okay. Okay. That's a wrap. <laughs>